As we continue through our study of the book of Mark, this morning we'll be in chapter 14, starting at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayal is at hand. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who is sovereign over all things. We thank you, Lord, in our weakness and our frailty, that you are not hindered that you remain all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, that you are gracious and kind, that you are holy and righteous. I thank you, Father, that in our state of weakness and sin and rebellion, you have not left us without hope, that you have sent your Son to both come as God and in the likeness of men, and to pay the penalty for our sin. I pray that you would give our weak hearts hope this morning. I pray you would remind us, Lord, of your great power and victory through the gospel. And you would comfort us that you accomplished that victory through your Son. I pray you would give us humility and clarity through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This passage, Sinclair Ferguson, and I put the quote in your notes because I think it's helpful. Sinclair Ferguson states, Never in the Gospels does the humanity of Jesus shine more clearly. And never in the Gospels does His holiness appear more forcibly. As we look at this passage in Mark and also recorded in Luke and in Matthew, uh, Jesus, Jesus in the Garden, I agree with Sinclair Ferguson, and I couldn't think of a way to say it better, so instead I'll just let him say it. That never in the gospel do we see more clearly the humanity of Christ, and never in the gospel do we see more forcibly His holiness and faithfulness. I think we we often sing of the power of Christ. We often sing of the victory of Christ. We rejoice in the victory of the cross but we seldom consider the weakness of Christ. We know that Christ is not like us. 
We know that He is holy and He is righteous. But I think we are often quick to forget that Christ took on the form of a servant. He humbled Himself by becoming a man. As the author of Hebrews wrote by the power of the Spirit, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because we fail to consider the truth of Christ's humble weakness, that on behalf of us, He has become a weak man, able to pay the penalty for weak men and weak women because of their sin, we fail to often lack what the author of Hebrews says should come from that. Let me read it again, including verse 16. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Christ's dependence upon the Father is real dependence. Christ, as a man, was fully dependent upon the Father, fully dependent upon the Spirit, to live for the glory of God. And in this passage, we see clearly the humanity of Christ, what you could call, and we feels foreign to our words, the weakness of Christ. That He became weak for us, weak like us. Many point to this passage for various reasons, but if you look at the, the ongoing, as Danny said, the ancient highlighter of this passage, what is repeated here is prayer and dependence on God in moments of weakness and temptation. It's prayer and dependence on God, how Christ lived as a man, completely dependent And what he did in weakness when everything seemed to surround him, we've looked for the last few weeks, he loved them, cared for them. He put his heart out for others. He was not in despair about what God had planned and purposed. And yet we see here in the garden, as the cross is before him, as the wrath of God will be fully laid upon him, We see in the humanity of Christ, His despair, the weakness of His flesh, body, the weakness of His human mind, His human heart, in needing to depend on Christ. And we see Christ doing, in this moment of sorrow, what He does throughout His life, being dependent upon the Father going to Him in prayer, crying out to Him. We're also told in Hebrews that same truth, that He cried out to the Father. And so let's look then again, if you look with me at the passage, I'm going to break it down in just four alliterations because that's the way my mind works and it helps me remember my outline. The place, the purpose, the pressure, and the prayer. First, the place. What is this Garden of Gethsemane? 
Matthew and Mark both label it this. Uh, Luke and John call it a private garden. John tells us in chapter 18, this would be a regular retreat for Jesus and his disciples when they were in Jerusalem. So this is a familiar place. Uh, We know that they've been there many times. This is a privately owned garden uh, for uh, anything we could gather to, to guess that. Someone allows Jesus to use it. And when they go there, that garden has a name that Mark and Matthew include that is the olive press or the pressure. And many point to the the reality of the pressure on Christ and uh, the irony or the help of that name, the olive press. But just a garden ready to go to, available to Christ and his humanity through relationship and through time on earth. Uh, He is there in Jerusalem, going there. Remember, after the Passover feast, Judas has left. He has gone to betray him. And Christ does not go somewhere else. Judas would not know. He goes exactly where Judas would know they are. Verse 32 goes on. It says, And they went to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping? Taking your rest, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's a short passage this week, so I thought it'd be helpful to just read it fully again for you as all of these things are kind of throughout. As we see the purpose, you can look at those verses referenced and the purpose is throughout the passage made known to us. I think often we lose the benefit on a Sunday morning because as I'm preparing, I read this passage again and again and again. And I I listen to the chapters in my car and I'm I'm doing that. And I know on a Sunday morning, you might have read it a few times. You get the email saying where we're going to be but you haven't read it over and over again. And so it's to our benefit to look again. And particularly in this passage, the purpose we see throughout. Two purposes we see here, the preparation of the disciples and Christ's prayer to the Father. The preparation of the disciples first. This occasion would teach Peter and James and John an important lesson about their own weakness, their frailty, It would teach them not to depend on their false assurance, their pride, their greatness, but to depend upon the Father through Christ by the power of the Spirit. We know these men will be leaders. We know in many ways these men already view themselves and are viewed as others, uh, as leaders. Peter, given the name The Rock, uh, which, I mean, even in our own society, we see that's, that's special, right? 
You're the rock. Uh, James and John, cousins of Jesus, uh, we see in all of the Gospels uh, that they ask to be at his right hand or his left. They assume their prominence among the disciples. We see Peter leading frequently throughout Scripture. Uh, We saw it just last week as we looked at verse 31. As the disciples are told they will betray Christ, Peter steps out in front of the group and he says, first, they might all, but I won't. Then second, even if I have to die with you, I will follow you. And it says they all followed Peter's words. They didn't act on Peter's words, but they followed them. James and John, we saw the same in Mark 10. Was they came to Jesus asking, will you grant us permission to be on your left and your right? And Jesus answers them, you do not know what you're asking. Can you bear the cup that I will bear? Now in their weakness, they have assumed they will be great in the kingdom of God. In their own pride, their own desires, their own assumptions, they have an idea of what they will accomplish. And Christ here is showing them their need for dependence. Their need to rest and wait on God. You you notice that all the disciples, first He has all of them with Him, well, 11 of the disciples, and they tell Him, wait here. Then He takes the three with Him. And many speculate about why this is. They say, you know, that Christ needed friendship or comfort or or all those things. Well, we see Christ many times go to pray by himself. Why does he bring these disciples? He tells us in the passage, he comes back to them and he says, could you not pray? Could you not watch and pray for a little while? His expectation in Him coming to them is that they should be awake and they should be praying. They have already been informed of what is before them, that they are all going to flee. Mark doesn't tell us, but the other Gospels do, that Jesus tells Peter, Satan is looking to sift you like wheat. Pray. And so He cares for the disciples and again coming and telling them, pray. Pray that you would not enter into temptation. Watch with me. Wait with me. And pray. Three times we see that happen. Uh, It's not as clear here. You do see it here uh, that Jesus comes to them three times. First, he tells them to pray, comes back. They're sleeping. Jesus goes off to pray. Again, the same things it says. Comes back again. They're sleeping. And then in Mark, it's just a simple statement. And the third time, he comes back. And again, They're sleeping. We see the preparation of the disciples. As he awaits his betrayers, he continues in his regular practice, dependence upon the Father. But in doing so, he also cares for his disciples to say, you don't see the weight of what is going on. Be awake. Pray. Look to your own weakness and depend upon the Father. So we see first the purpose, the preparation of His disciples. And then second, prayer to the Father. 
that he is there for prayer. Again and again, we see in verse 32, 35, 39, and the beginning of 41, that Christ goes to the Father. He tells his disciples in verse 32, sit here while I pray. He says again that he prayed in verse 35. Again, that he is giving the specifics of his prayer in verse 36. And that he is then moving on again to pray the same things two other times. The third in verse 41. And so, the purpose in one, as Christ has done throughout the pressure of this week, the last week of his life, preparing his disciples for what is coming. And here, why retreat to the garden? It is his regular practice. You can look, just look up Jesus and praying, do a, a little Bible study. You're a good Bible student, so I trust you can do it on your own. I won't do it all for you this morning. But you will see it is the regular practice of Christ to retreat to prayer before he calls his disciples at times of pressure, even at times where others like Peter are telling him, hey, you got to get out there. you got to do this. Everyone's coming to be healed. And he is off praying. The place, the purpose, and then really the bulk of the passage, the pressure. Verse 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Three descriptions of Christ's distress, his anguish, his pressure in this situation. It says, first, he is visibly, greatly distressed and troubled. He tells his disciples he is sorrowful even on to death. And then his prayer, it says he fell to the ground. So let's look at those a little more deeply individually. This distressed and troubled. This word translated distress, it's interesting because this often happens in English translations. The, the word troubled actually could be translated distress. And the word that is translated distress could have other translations also, uh, but those translations might not get the point to us in English because that word distressed has more in it alarmed or perplexed or excitement. And if we had that, if it said he was excited and troubled, that would take a little more explanation in English, right? It's like, wait, he's both excited and troubled, so he's having like a little bit of like personality struggle. Like, I'm really hyped up about this, but I'm also troubled about it. It wouldn't get at what it's saying. Distress is a good translation because that word is not meaning he's excited in joy. It means he's in shock. He's perplexed. He's alarmed about something. He's troubled or in despair, spiritual anguish. And he's sorrowful. He is afflicted beyond measure. He is experiencing trouble in his heart, in his soul. 
He is distressed. He is shocked. He is not, uh, he is not comfortable with what is going on. And he describes it then as he is sorrowful. Surrounded by sadness beyond measure to the point where he says it feels as though or it could even take his life. Sorrowful even on to death. I think we can understand this kind of distress for us. I think it, it would be more, uh, and some of you are just weird people that enjoy this type of distress. Uh, when someone scares you, shocks you, right? Like some of you pay a lot of money to go places to have this happen to you over and over again. I think it has more to do with that we have lived a very sheltered life, so we think of being scared as kind of a joke rather than actual tear. We like the feeling of that excitement. And that's not the kind of tear or distress that Christ is describing here. It is that same kind of emotion that is being described. That kind of shock feeling comes over your body and you feel like, oh, I don't know what to do. But it does not end. It's not the initial shock then met by laughter. And that, oh, I like the kind of high that that gave. It is the ongoing agony of that kind of shock without relief, right? And as I make light jokes about it, I know that many of you like it because you experience it in that way. Because it's not real. It's shock with immediate relief because you know it's not real. But you could imagine, and maybe you have experienced at times, nothing like Christ is experiencing, shock without relief. To be overwhelmed, to not know what to do with the shock, with the anguish, with the ongoing alarm in your heart, alarm that does not relieve, that just keeps coming. This is the distress that Christ felt. Alarm with no relief. That's what he's describing. And this is not the result of the ongoing and soon-to-be-accomplished plans of religious leaders. Right? For years, these men have proclaimed they are going to kill Christ. And Christ has not lived His life in the last three years of ministry in distress and anguish. It was not the pressure of men outside. It is not the result of the soon-coming betrayal of Jesus by Judas. He's already communicated that. We have seen throughout this week, and even prior to that, he's communicated he would be betrayed. That's not alarming or shocking to Christ. He knows that is coming. It's not the result of the failure of his disciples to hear his warnings. It's not about their coming response. He's already declared to them what their response would be. He knows that. It's not shocking to him. And it's not the coming persecution of Roman soldiers and the political injustice of Pilate. It's not even the combination of all those things that have just brought Christ to a breaking point where he can't handle it. He's very clear about what is causing this distress in his soul. What is alarming to him? What is a pressure and a weight and a feeling that feels foreign 
and he does not know what to do with it. It's not any of those outside pressures that Christ has been so faithful through. He makes very clear what the pressure is. Verse 36, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. The pressure on Christ is the reality of what he will declare on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The completely perfect, righteous Christ has never felt a feeling of guilt. He has never been guilty. He was holy and perfect and righteous. You know the feeling of guilt as a human. You know the weight that you know you have rebelled against God. You feel it at times. You fight it. You find ways to remove it. I remember as a young man growing up in a home with faithful Christian parents, lying in bed at night and feeling overwhelmed by the fact that I know I'm living in sin. And I know hell is real. And I know I deserve it. And what do I do? Many would say, we don't talk to kids that way. We don't tell them there's a reality of hell. We don't tell them that man is punished and crushed eternally because of their sin. They would say that's foolish and wrong. Why would you tell a child that God is a God of love? And yet those children don't know what to do with that feeling because that feeling is not brought on by others telling you the truth. It is brought on by your existence on earth. And you know that the wrath of God, as Romans says, weighs over all unrighteousness. It might be clarified by the words of others, but that guilt that weighs on us is not because someone else told us. It's because we see creation. We see other people made in the image of God. We see the world created for His glory. We see His kindness that the sun rises and the sun sets. We see His faithfulness even when everything seems wrong around us, even when horrible things are happening. Somehow the world recovers to go on as though it was just a warning. Because it was. We know the feeling of guilt. We know the grief, the weight, the reality that the wrath of God hangs over us. What we don't know and what we will never know is that weight over Christ. See, you, you only have the knowledge of that weight over you. You only have the knowledge that you are unrighteous and something must be done because of that. And you only possibly have the weight and the guilt of your own life. But the weight that is bearing on Christ isn't even fathomable in the ideas of man. Because hell is eternal, because man will never be able to pay for his sin against God. 
A finite human can never pay the eternal penalty of their sin. They cannot make recompense to God for that. That's why Christ is both man suffering for you in his weakness and God in that he is not suffering just in weakness, but he is suffering in a matter of hours from this moment for the sins, the eternal payment for millions, not for one. He is taking upon him an eternal payment for us that is only bearable by him because he is both man and eternal God. He is taking a penalty that no singular man could ever understand and will eternally be poured out on their rebellion. Not for one man, but for many. So while we can relate in weakness, the burden of guilt, we will never know the weight that Christ took on in despair now and in the full pouring out of wrath. It is shocking to him and overwhelming to him because this experience is something Jesus has never known. The weight and the reality that he is going to be removed from the favor of the Father. That as He declared with the Son, or as the Son, with the Father and the Spirit, that it is the will of the Lord to crush Him. That He will bear the ransom for many. That the wrath of God would be poured out upon Him, though He is righteous and holy. In His perfect holiness, He is feeling the weight and his human frailty of what is coming upon him. Tempted, yet without sin. Never broken, but completely emotionally broken and burdened here, waiting. He's preparing, and he's crying out to God. Notice what he cries. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. This pressure on Christ does not cause him to turn to sin. Do you hear what he prays? He says, is there any other way? Is there a way this could be accomplished, but you could remove the cup from me? Is is there a way to accomplish this without the cup of wrath poured on me? And he quickly follows up with what is important, but I think we mention more often, yet not what I will, but what you will. Consider the life in which Christ is currently finding himself at this time. Surrounded by enemies. As I mentioned last week, a whole city of people that were proclaiming his praises just a few days ago. And in a matter of hours, will cry out for him to be crucified. A close friend who has been with him for three years, shared sleeping quarters, shared food, held the money for everyone to take care of all the needs, was sent out with others to proclaim the name of Christ, who would betray him 
and at this very time is betraying him. Disciples, 11 of them, who he has lived with and lived life with, who he has been there shoulder to shoulder through time and time again, both persecution and rejoicing, requesting of them, can you pray with me? And they're falling asleep. They don't care. A government that is utterly corrupt, that is surrounded by sexual immorality, that worships all kinds of sin as their gods, preparing to crucify Him with the most brutal form of torture and corporal punishment upon a righteous man, and willing to do so even when they know this man is righteous, but willing to sacrifice his life for political reasons. All of that weighing on Christ. And what does he pray? All things are possible for you. Remove the cup. Is there any other way this can be accomplished? Do you know what I would pray? Kill the Romans. They deserve it. My disciples are not following me. Why would I die for them? Judas is currently selling me for 30 silver coins. I've been to the temple twice and flipped the table and told these men to repent, and they are planning my murder. Do you know what my heart does in human weakness? It says, this isn't my fault. And yet, that would all be lies coming out of my mouth. That would be pride. And arrogance, that would be the assumption that all the problems of the world are out there and there is only perfection in here. And so even my cries, damn them, Lord, not me, would be unjust. I would be praying like the Pharisee, thank you that I am not like other men. There's only one man in all of history who could pray such a prayer and it not be a lie. Only one man who could pray, Lord, I am holy and righteous. I do not deserve this. They do. And that is not what Christ prays. When Christ is embattled all around, and He was sorrowful even to the point of death, because He would pay the cost of His sin, He is holy and righteous. And he prays if there's any other way to accomplish God's will, to save them, to make them holy, to make them righteous. If there is any other way. He does not cry out in imprecatory psalms. He pleads in weakness. Help me to depend upon your will, not mine. That's why I agree with Ferguson. Never in the Gospels does the humanity of Jesus shine through more clearly. And never in the Gospels does His holiness appear more forcibly than in the Garden of Gethsemane. When all the pressure is on Christ, when He is embattled in weakness, when He is fragile and in despair, He does not cry out 
for condemnation. He pleads for help from the God who he declares all things are possible for you. He's not telling God to change his will. He's recognizing, as we often do in prayer, you are faithful, you are holy, you are righteous, you can do anything, please help me. And Christ gives clarity here. He finishes his prayer with not my will, but your will. All things are possible. Please, if there is any other way, but not his will, not his desires, not the cries of his momentary weakness, not the cries of his human body that's saying this is too much for me. This is overwhelming. Not the cries that his body says, if I don't, if something doesn't happen, I'm going to die just from the pressure that I feel upon me. And you could say, Christ is just being dramatic. You could say depression is just a form of, of drama. And I would agree with you in, in many cases in our society. Right? We don't talk about depression as something caused by outside pressures that are going on. We talk about depression as a mental illness that just comes upon people for no explainable reason. That's not the kind of depression Jesus is having here. While Jesus is a man of sorrows, he is a man acquainted with grief. He's not a man of sorrows just walking around saying, the world is after me when the world's not actually after him. Well, that's the confusion of our understanding of depression, how we speak and use the word depression. Christ is in despair. He is in sorrow. He feels as though he can't go on because he is being pressed with the weight of the reality before him. Now, in saying that, what do you do if you're depressed and you don't actually have a reason, right? You, you, what do you do? Well, I would say here, just like Christ, you still lean on to God. You still cry out to Him. You plead with Him. I don't, I don't know why I have these feelings. I don't know what it's here. You remind yourself, as we're commanded throughout Scripture, to rest your hope on what is true, to place your anxieties upon Him. But what we see in Christ here, this is, this is not a prescription for what we call depression. This is a description of the consequences and the reality of actual depression pressing in on the sorrow of Christ. It is also a description of how Christ responds to temptation. How he responds when things are coming upon him that are too heavy and too much. How Christ responds when he felt as though his human weakness could not move forward. He is honest about where he is at. And he is honest about where his hope is. We see that in his prayer. He pleads, remove the cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. He leans into the reality of the will of God. He is tempted in every way, but without sin, never turning from the Father's will. Here determined, the determined will of the Father is overwhelming to him. 
The determined weight of what is coming is causing his soul to feel crushed. Luke would tell us that he sweat great drops of blood. And many who have far more medical understanding than I do, or any of us probably, will tell you that this is an actual phenomenon. That he could have blood vessels bursting in his body because of the weight and the pressure that's what's going on. And he is both sweating and that sweat is filled with blood. Alistair Begg reminds in his sermon that I thought was very helpful uh, that this is not the time for sweating. The sweat is not happening because of the temperature of the garden. Uh, Remember, just a matter of hours, Peter will be standing before a fire with others trying to keep warm because of the coldness of the weather. He's not sweating because he hiked and he's in a garden. He is sweating, and that sweat is filled with blood because of the pressure that is upon him. And in his human weakness, he meets divine hope. While he endures the distress, the anguish, and the sorrow of his humanity, he gives himself in weakness for our sake. He paid for human weakness, the penalty of our rebellion against the creator and the sustainer of all things, so that we now have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. And though tempted in every respect as we are tempted, he did so without sin. Or as we were reminded in Philippians, that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He was obedient to the point that he was sorrowful even on to death. And he did not retreat. He leaned in to Christ in weakness. He didn't say, I got this, I can do this. He leaned in saying, I am in despair. All things are possible for you. Help, yet not my will, but the will of the Father. Being found in human form, he was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him, has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The weakness of Peter and James and John and all those other guys like Bartholomew, who we don't remember, covered by Christ. The night when they couldn't stay awake and he came to them three times pleading, can you stay awake? All covered by Christ. Their weakness in the garden, we might look at and see as an example to us that we don't want to be like Peter and James and John. But in reality, we are like Peter and James and John. We're weak. We're men. We're women. We're like Christ in the flesh, in his body, weak. And yet, Romans 5 says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
That while we were still weak, while we were in a body of flesh, while we were unable to do and accomplish the will of God, while we were burdened by not having the full ability to accomplish everything we wanted and also blessed by such a thing because what we want is often sin. While we were weak, Christ died for us because we are not just weak. Yes, we are weak, and we too seldomly think about that and the reality that I've I've tried to push this morning, that Christ understands your weakness. He has lived your weakness, and He has had victory in weakness through dependence upon the Father accomplishing the will of God. And so when you find yourself weak, yes, you are like Peter, and you are like James, and you are like John but you are more like them later when they have heard the truth and they have boldness, no longer in pride. Peter no longer cries out, I I am the greatest, I can do this, no one else can. He writes in 1 Peter 5 that fellow elders, those who lead, should humble themselves for the sake of service to others. James who with John said they should bring down thunder upon these rebellious pagans, is the first man to die a martyr, the first one going and willing to give his life for Christ. And John, the other son of thunder, was persecuted more than any apostle because he survived attempts to martyr him again and again and again. He lived a long life of persecution. The son of thunder became the apostle of love, the author of the book of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which declare again and again and again, not, I stand at the right hand of Christ and crush the nations, but cries out, love one another, serve one another. The example was not lost on these men. Because the Spirit of God was given to these men. Because Christ suffered in weakness on their behalf. Christian, the same is true for you. You are weak. And you will find yourself in weakness. You will find yourself in times of temptation. And you will find your heart wanting to turn to sin and rebellion. And when you do, if you are tempted to say, He could never understand this. Who is God to tell me how I'm to live? How could he ever understand the pressures which I am going through as a man on earth? Do not be confused. He has made it very clear. His love from you is not one far out there unknown, but his love is one very intimate willing so much to pay a penalty we could never understand in our place because we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way we are, yet without sin, who has taken on weakness and cried out in dependence upon God and paid for your sin. I pray that as you continue to reflect in the book of Mark and read the passages and all that comes upon Christ, that you do not lose and become distracted thinking pragmatically, how can this help me? But you would be greatly helped 
by practically and honestly looking at the reality that Christ has paid all the cost of your holiness. That you can rest in him, in the power of Christ and the weakness of human flesh, because he has made it all righteous in Christ. Let's pray that God would be so faithful and that we would hear, that he would work to encourage us in the truth.